This is a Sunday Talk by Joel titled, Time and Eternity, recorded January 30th, 1994, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Our second fundamental reads, Ignorance of the real is the root of suffering. From ignorance is born the delusion of self. From the delusion of self, desire for the world. From desire for the world, attachment to worldly forms. From attachment to worldly forms, all forms of suffering. Now, why does attachment to worldly forms cause suffering? I'm asking that question. If anybody knows the answer, yes. The worldly forms are impermanent. They are impermanent. Very good. <laughs> but what does impermanent mean? What does impermanent mean? It's changing. Change. Things change. Not eternal. They're not eternal. They don't last. They break. They break, right? What else? They don't have any inherent self-nature. Oh, there's a philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, but I'm, I'm trying to get more to our normal, deluded experience of things. <laughs> they die. They die, yeah, right, they're born, they die, change. They go away. They go away. Here today, gone tomorrow. Ever heard that expression? All of this has to do with time, right? Things are impermanent. Somehow the impermanence of things is related to time. So our question is, what is time? A concept. A concept, right. But if it was just a concept, why would it cause us so much trouble? Because it's believed in. Well, very good. <laughs> See, you sure you haven't been here before? <laughs> a believed in concept. This world is a world of... Uh, we believe this world is a world of change of time. This is why Ananda Moyamai says, happiness that depends on anything or anyone turns into sorrow when that particular thing or person is out of reach. They leave. Everything in the world is transitory, so also worldly happiness. It comes and the next moment it is gone. If permanent, abiding happiness is to be found, that which is eternal will have to be realized. You mentioned it. Impermanence is the opposite of what is eternal. And Ananda Moyamai is making the same point. There is no possibility of finding permanent, abiding happiness in a world of impermanence, in the world of time, when everything changes. You might find a temporary kind of happiness but because all things are impermanent, all things are impermanent, whatever is the cause of your happiness is bound to change, break, go away, die, and then you're left unhappy again. This is what in uh, Buddhism is called cyclic existence. It goes round and round and round. We keep chasing happiness in the world of impermanent forms, the world of time, and we never find it. And from a mystic's point of view, what's wrong with this isn't that it's evil or bad in the sense of some sort of cosmic evil or, or, or badness. It's futile. It just won't work. It's a question of reality. We can say it's bad and we can say it's evil because it causes suffering. It doesn't have any, there's no other meaning of being bad and evil except for the fact that it causes us suffering. The Sufis, therefore, recommend uh, one of the stages of their path is the cleansing of the heart. And they say this means the erasing from the heart its love for the ephemeral world and its worry over griefs and sorrows and establishing in their place an ardent love for God alone. Because God alone in the Sufi tradition is not ephemeral, is not impermanent is eternal. Most of all, of course, this would mean erasing 
love for oneself because our, our deepest unhappiness comes from our attachment to forms that we believe are ourselves. Body, mind, emotions, and so forth. And so if we're attached to self, we all know in reality self is impermanent, or at least all these forms of limited forms that we think of as ourselves. So our body is going to die, our emotional states are going to change. We might find ourselves emotionally very happy for a while, but it, it, it's bound to change. And then tomorrow we'll have sorrow. And so we'll have lost that, that state that we've been hanging on to, because that's impermanent. This is why the Hasidic masters say, how can one who remains attached to his own self go beyond time to the world where all is one? And Meister Eckhart, a great Christian mystic, says, If this will turns away from itself and from all creation for one instant and back to its first source, then the will stands in its true and free state, and it is free, and in this instant all lost time is restored. Interesting. These phrases, these teachings from these various mystics, give the impression here that there are two worlds. There's the world of time, of uh, ephemeral forms, of impermanence, and then there's some other world. God, the source, Brahman, the Hindus would say, Allah, the Sufis would say. So, it seems then that this teaching points to a, another dimension of reality, so to speak, which is not impermanent, which is not ephemeral, which is not transitory, which is eternal. doesn't have anything to do with time. But, listen carefully here. The Bhagavad Gita says, What is not cannot come into being. And what is has no end. Now, that's a different teaching, isn't it? You look skeptical. Is it a different teaching or not? It takes it deeper, that's for sure. Well, what do you think this means? The well, Gita's teaching. Well, it's just extending the previous teaching and saying that all these <clears throat> ephemeral forms have no existence, truly speaking. They're just an appearance. Anybody disagree with that? Does everybody understand what he's talking about? You're right, absolutely right. It's a deeper teaching. It's not a question that there is a world of forms and impermanence and time that we live in. This teaching says there is no such world. Nothing that truly exists, nothing that's really real, can ever come into being. And nothing that is real ever goes out of being. The Buddha says something very similar. Those who believe in the birth of something that has never been in existence and coming into existence vanishes away find no foothold in my teachings. When it is realized that there is nothing born and nothing passes away, then there is no way to admit being and non-being and the mind becomes quiescent. So this teaching says not only are we suffering because we become attached to impermanent forms, impermanent things, which would, if, if just at that level, would lead you to believe, well, maybe I'll just let go of these impermanent things and I'll go find something permanent. This teaching says that those impermanent things don't even exist. They have no reality. So... It's not only the fact that you're attached to something that is impermanent, you're attached to something that doesn't exist in the first place. If this is true. We never just take the mystics' words for it. They're, 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 we take it as a guide. I mean, we have to test it. This is a, 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 a witness. They bear witness. They say, this is what we have discovered, we have realized. And so what our job then is to test this. Is this true? Because a lot of it sounds wacko. I mean, let's face it, it does. 
it's completely counter to our experience. This young man said the time is a concept and the problem is we believe in it. That is the problem. It's easy to say time is a concept, which is perfectly true, by the way. But just to say that doesn't necessarily dispel our belief, does it? See, that's why you can go to a philosophy class down at the U of O and you can uh, or maybe study Derrida. Does anybody know who Derrida is? Who's Derrida? He's a French philosopher who's uh, saying there isn't anything. You're just talking a lot of garbage. Right. <laughs> He's very convincing, too. I mean, uh, if you really get into Derrida. And I, by the way, I, I'm not against philosophers. Uh, if you can really trust logic and get into it, it can change your perception. For most people, they go into a class, they study Derrida, and they get into this big argument, and intellectually they're convinced that, no, that it's all garbage, we're just talking about garbage, none of it all exists. But then they come out and uh, of class, and they go down to the bike rack, and they find their bike has been stolen. And they're very upset, they're a lot of suffering. They call the police, they say, my bike has been stolen. And this gets reinforced socially because no death sergeant ever picks up and says, your bike never existed in the first place. What are you worried about? <laughs> they don't. They say, oh, that's terrible. Uh, you know, what, give me your name and address and we'll check it out. So uh, this belief is reinforced by the whole society. Everywhere we turn, there's, there's this belief. But the Buddha just says, nothing is born and nothing dies. In other words, there is no time. There is no time. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean Ananda Moyamai and uh, the Sufis and uh, uh, the Hasidic master we read, are they, uh, they don't know what they're talking about. Maybe they have a lower realization or something like that. Uh, or maybe they have a contradictory teaching. After all, these were not Buddhists. It doesn't mean that, and those of you who uh, heard my talk on the two truths uh, will find here an example of just that, or I should say multi-layer truths. And I make a little digression here to point out to you that all mystics uh, have multi-layers uh, of uh, teachings, and each one has a different truth value, from a quite relative truth value to a pointing to at least an absolute truth value. Not all teachings point to the absolute truth. The absolute truth can never, of course, be stated in a teaching anyway. But some teachings point uh, more directly. They're closer. And other teachings are more relative. And that's because people on a spiritual path go through stages. And so there are some mystics who will only point to the highest teaching to begin with. They'll say, nothing's real, realize it. And that's great. That's Krishnamurti was like that. You don't need any meditation. You don't need any precepts. You don't need any teachers. You don't need any teachings. Just realize it. Well, this is nothing wrong with this. I mean, it's a very high teaching. But how valuable is it for people, really? And so uh, I once heard a, a Buddhist uh, lama, Tibetan lama, commenting on Krishnamurti. He said, I. He said, as a, as a Buddhist, I have no argument with Krishnamurti's teaching, uh, but he doesn't have any way to give any way for people to realize it. No help. So, uh, it's, as it's said of the Buddha, uh, the Buddha teaches many things because people are at many levels in their development, in their understanding. So, a, uh, a more relative teaching can be much more helpful to you at one time in your life than the absolute teaching. But the one thing you can, the way you can distinguish mystics from uh, spiritual teachers who are not mystics is if you read enough of their work, you will find that uh, somewhere they point to the absolute truth. It does mean though every sentence is the absolute truth. I make this digression because some people get very involved in trying to uh, understand what is apparently contradictory teachings. And if you just keep that in mind and ask yourself, well, is he talking about an absolute truth or is this a relative truth? Then often everything will fall into place for you a lot better. This is particularly true when uh, the teachings are actual practical instructions. 
like a Buddhist may say to you, well, uh, the best thing to do is sit down and uh, focus your attention on the breath. Now, somebody uh, could come along from a Buddhist point of view and say, well, there is no one to focus attention. Well, that's true. Then why did the Buddha say focus your attention? He's giving you a relative practical teaching through which you may realize the ultimate truth. So, then what is time? If, it, if the mystics say ultimately it doesn't exist, ultimately it has no reality, let's investigate that, our experience of time. One of the first questions we could try to ask, and I always encourage people to ask very uh, direct, concrete, even stupid-sounding questions. That'll lead you to more subtle questions. So we could ask, you know, what color is time, for instance? Whatever color you make it. Whatever color you make it? What color would you like it to be? Purple? <laughs> Purple time. And uh, how much does it weigh? It's kind of purple. It weighs about six pounds, right? What shape is it? Time is an eggplant. An eggplant. It's a purple eggplant that weighs six pounds. No, this is, but this is serious because you see, when we try to give time any of those descriptions, it sounds stupid, doesn't it? So what is time? I mean, we talk about time all the time, you know, don't we? I mean, you know, so I'm, I'm running late. Can you hurry up? You've got to be on time now for this job. Time in our culture particularly uh, plays such an important role in our life. Think about it. Your job, appointments, dates, your favorite television show, the, the time the movie starts, or the uh, if you're more highbrow, the opera starts at the Holt Center. It doesn't matter. This is, you know, classless. <laughs> Low class, upper class, cultured, uncultured. Doesn't it? play an extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary role in our lives, and more so probably in our culture than any other culture that's existed on Earth. Or a particular form of time, anyway. This precision of time. This keeping track of every moment. Most of you, at any time in the day, if somebody asks you what time it is, you probably come within 15 minutes without even looking at your watch. It's not necessarily... Yeah, but that's not necessarily what time it is. Or I mean, God... It's just, I don't really understand it, because somewhere we put, we said, here's hours, here's seconds, and I don't know where it came from at all. I have no idea why we have hours and seconds and days and months and years and why I'm 21 years old. No Do, does anybody know? That's a very good question. That's exactly what we want to investigate. Yeah. It was done for convenience. For convenience. Yes. Our forefathers did it for convenience. <laughs> the mothers that did it. Our <laughs> <laughs> foremothers did it. Right. Now we've got at least something to blame the mothers for. <laughs> well, that would make it a convention. We could say that time is only conventional. Doesn't it have to do with the, the observation of the sun moving in the heavens and, and the exactness of that? Well, historically, you're absolutely right. Or you're relatively right. I keep saying that. But I don't mean absolutely right. It's a relative. <laughs> Anything to do with time is relative. But you are right in terms of our uh, historical researches. That the early human societies noticed that there were rhythms, repeating rhythms in life. The sun goes around once. So we call it a day. Uh, the moon goes through phases over approximately 30 days. That's a month. We notice that as time goes on, time goes on. You see, we can hardly talk about this without using the word. As time goes on, it gets warmer and warmer and warmer, and then it starts getting colder and colder and colder. And then people notice that actually the position of the sun started changing against the horizon. So when it comes all the way around the, the sun's position back to where it was, when it was nice and warm, well, we call that a year. Or when it's cold, or whenever time you want to pick for your new year to begin. So time is not completely conventional in the sense that, uh, you know, somebody just decided, well, we'll have a day, a month, and a year. 
it is pegged to visible transformations of things around us, patterns of things around us. But what is time itself? I mean, the, the thing that we, when we say time, what are we referring to? Well, let's see what Nargajuna, who is a great Buddhist philosopher, has to say about this. Priority and posteriority, that is before and after, are not absolutes. These have significance only relatively to each other and relatively to a specific event in its concrete setting. Prior and posterior, as well as past, present, and future, belong to relational concepts or concepts of mutual relation. There is not anything like past itself, present in itself, or future in itself. We're now coming back to what you said in the beginning. It's a concept, a particular kind of concept, a relational concept. Like spatial concepts are relational concepts. I could say, Mike is sitting near me. And Fred is sitting far away. When I use those words near and far, they don't have any specific form you can point to. And they, they'll slide, you know, depending on my concrete circumstances. So right now, relatively speaking, Mike's sitting nearer than Fred is. But if we were out on the desert and Mike was sitting where Fred is and Fred was half a mile away, then Fred would be nearer. They're, they just describe relations, changing relations. There's nothing concrete here in them. So what Nargajuna is saying here is that when we talk about specifically past, present, and future, there is no true past. There is no true future. There's no thing there to grab a hold of. They're just relational concepts. Is this true? How could we test this? You're talking about whether it's true that time is a relation. Yeah, the time and, and, and when you break it down into things like past, present, and future, the, the aspects of time. That it's relational, similar to space relations? Space yeah. Relationships. Here, let me give you a little uh, exercise to do. This is, uh, you won't be able to do this perfectly, but it's some idea of it. Close your eyes and try to imagine a space in which no objects arise. Or if that's too difficult, imagine some object like a sphere, let's say, or let's say a, a, a purple eggplant, but it doesn't change, it doesn't move, nothing happens to it. How could you tell anything about past, present, or future in that world? Can we open our eyes? Yes. Okay. You couldn't. You couldn't. If you had no form, or let's start with, if you had one form, that's all there was, just let's say a, a sphere, and it didn't move, it didn't erode, nothing happened to it, you wouldn't have any time. There's no relation to anything. You, do you see what I'm talking about? And, and, even more so if you had no objects. There's no time. This is for another digression here for those of you who are interested in science and so forth. This is the kind of thinking that uh, Einstein engaged in when he came up with his theory of relativity. He asked himself questions like this. Oh, by the way, these in German are called thought experiments, the Duncan experiments. In any case, they're little thought experiments you can do. Close your eyes again. And imagine uh, that you're looking out the portal of a spaceship. And you see, all you see is one asteroid passing from, say, left to right by the portal. Now ask yourself, 
am I moving and the asteroid is standing still, or is, am I standing still and the asteroid is moving? Or both. Or both, thank you, or both. How could I tell? How could I make a determination? By finding something that the asteroid could be relative to, say a star. Ah, but that's why I said, all you see is an asteroid. Nothing in the background, no point of reference. Very good, but this, this is the whole point of this. There is no other point of reference. Hmm? Couldn't tell. Does anybody think you could tell? Movement would be, is, is relative. Exactly. It really doesn't matter which, you, I mean, you will never be able to tell, and it really doesn't matter which one's moving. And in what sort of matter? It does, I don't think it matters which one's moving at the time. But if, it, if it's asteroid or you. Well, more than it doesn't matter, how could you possibly tell? By feeling yourself. But what is it? And movement's in relationship to something, too. So, if they're both moving relative to each other. They could be, both be moving. Okay. If, you, if you felt, uh, this is a, a side problem in relativity, if you felt something, it would mean you were accelerating, and then you would. But if you were not accelerating, you would not feel any movement. Just the way uh, when you're flying in an airplane, you're flying very smoothly, you don't feel moving, you know what I mean? If the airplane suddenly speeds up, you know, like sometimes coming in for a gentle landing and there's some problem, if you've ever been in an airplane like that, you feel it. You feel that acceleration, the G's. But just going along, you don't feel it, so you can't tell by that unless you're accelerating. Yeah. So it seems like you would need to create a reference of some sort in order to decide this, and it would be fairly arbitrary. You would make a decision, a distinction. You choose. So let's call it we're standing still and the asteroid is moving. This is, in fact, what uh, early cultures did in relation to the Earth, right? The Earth is standing still, so the sun goes around the Earth and uh, the stars go around the Earth. Arbitrary choice. We choose. Very interesting. It is a convention. Even though we're not aware of it, even though early cultures assumed this must be the case, they're making this choice. And from that choice, that's how that early sense of time in terms of seasons and so forth gets generated. We choose, it's a convention that we choose and don't know it. And so this is what Nargajuna is saying about these relations of past, present, and future. They're just relational terms, like this, like terms of movement, trying to decide what's standing still and what's moving. There is no ultimate way to determine what's standing still and what's moving. You find a reference frame, if you were looking out the window and you saw another star... Star's moving. I mean, basically, you can break it down. You and the star could be moving at the same rate, and you could be passing by the stationary asteroid. But if you have enough things that are fixed, it's more convenient to think of one thing moving, and the rest of the stuff is standing still, the frame of reference. I, I, I agree, but there's, you cannot actually truly measure anything. Or, and there's nothing really saying that anything's actually fixed. That's exactly. Something may look more fixed, and it's just based on perception. That's why he says there, these are not absolutes, these terms, before and after. Okay. Uh, the time we usually sometimes think of as the measurement of motion. Would you do me a favor? I, there's a clock out in the kitchen. There, it's, just, it's the library clock. I propped up on the table. Would you, could you bring that out here? Notice how we're going about this investigation here. In, in mysticism, the way we investigate things is through our own experience. It's based on trusting your own experience, not your experience as it's been determined by your education, but trying to look at your experience directly, get rid of your ideas, or, or check them anyway, and put them in the closet for a while, and look as directly as possible. What is really right here. So here's a clock that uh, measures motion. 
the hand goes around. We look at the uh, at the minute hand there, particularly. You can see it going around. It goes around, 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 and every time it goes around, uh, we say, "Well, a minute's gone by." That's a second hand. I mean, a second hand. Sorry, thank you. <laughs> well, we do the same thing with the minute hand too. Uh, well, yeah, second hand, we say minutes gone by. The the minute hand goes around, we say an hour has gone by. And then we have other hands to keep count for us. It's a little bit like uh, what is that Chinese thing where you Abacus, right. That's really the principle of this. It's nothing but an abacus. It goes around once, and we shove something else over. It goes around again, we shove another thing over. So, but, but this, we, see, we say time is the measurement of motion, but here we have something in motion. Maybe time is then like inches. Inches are a measurement of length, for instance. Do inches have any uh, reality, existence, apart from a concept? Are inches inherent in a, a, a length of wood? Where do inches come from, anyway? Our foremothers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, our foremothers were great carpenters. <laughs> I think inches actually came from originally measuring by uh, the first digit of your thumb or finger or something like that. It wasn't very accurate because different carpenters had different lengths of, you know, fingers. So if you uh, if you had to switch carpenters in the middle of a job, your 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 shelves might not fit in your library because the next guy would come along, next woman would come along, and she would. Uh, Measure with her thumb, and it wouldn't fit the, the first guy's thumb. So we standardize it. Does anybody know where inches are? Why? I mean, how an inch is an inch? How could you, if you wanted to take your yardstick that you bought at the hardware store and check it and see if it was a true inch, how you do that? Isn't it in England in Greenwood or someplace like that where they have the actual standard? Is there Greenwich, 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 Greenwich yes. And they, it's under the temperature is kept just right so it doesn't expand or contract. There are. Do you know that? That's true. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> the Bureau of Standards, I think. Right. They have an inch. If you wanted to go, if you thought your hardware store was cheating you out of a little bit of an inches, you know, making their yardsticks a little shorter to save money on the wood they bought, oh, well, you could do that, you know. Then you could take, you could go over there and you could <laughs> say, I want to see uh, the, the standard inch. It's probably made in some, you know, metal, steel or something that's, um, least, uh, uh, or most resistant to temperature changes. And they take you in there and there'd be a very finely calibrated inch. And then you could hold up your yardstick. The same with pounds and, and other sorts of things. Why is a two by four not a two by four? Why is a two by four? <laughs> Do we have any carpenters here? That's because it's 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 a root when it's raw. It's, it's a two by four, and when you sand it down, it loses. It, they measure it as a raw board as soon as it's cut out of the log, and then when they sand it down to make it all nice and smooth and nifty, it loses. That's what they want us to believe anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy. Yeah. Make our houses shorter. <laughs> so I think they, they, on the raw laws, you know, they mark it out two by four, but then the cutting is removes part of the wood. Mm -hmm. And so that it's in after it's cutting, the sawdust is missing. Ah! So that's my opinion. Okay. <laughs> you know, after all my apprenticeships. <laughs> the size of two by fours has changed over the years, so it's not like a standard thing. They used to be closer to two by four. See, even this is impermanent. Two by fours. <laughs> you can't count on anything. Oddly enough, actually, even this, um, these, uh, measurements they have, these standards in uh, Greenwich or wherever they have them, uh, that they keep under such controlled temperature to keep them just, you know, that length, let's say an inch. Uh, this is also uh, completely relative according to Einstein's theory. We think, for instance, this is a, another common misperception, we think like this glasses case has a certain length. It doesn't have any certain length. It, it only has a length in this, uh, certain length in this reference frame. If we sent this in a rocket ship out to space, uh, approaching the speed of light, 
Uh, let's see, does it shrink or lengthen? Lengthens to infinity, that's right, I think. Well, I'm not... Infinite mass and infinite density. So it must uh, lengthen. It gets longer and longer. It doesn't have a particular length. It just has this length in this particular place in this particular time. These are, these are interesting ideas, not only just from the scientific point of view, because they make, if you take them seriously, they make you realize how tentative, how relative, how interdependent all the forms of our experience are. are. They're not absolute fixed. They're all relative, interdependent. There's nothing there to get a hold of. Let's take uh, uh, our own experience of past and future anyway. Put present aside for a minute. What is the past? When we really come down to examine our own experience, isn't, is there anything that we could call past that isn't memory? Let me ask that question that way. No. History book? Hmm? History book? History book. Uh, well, when we read a history book, what's going on? That's true. A fictional story. A fictional story? In history books, yes. I mean, they make this up. They select from all the things that happen and try to make it into a theory, and it's very fictional. But still, you're reading it in the present. And putting it in summary. Well, there, yeah, but there are two aspects here. Both are valid. One is, yes, you're still reading it in the present. And, but what uh, Teresa is saying is very important here. If there's now a, a field of study <laughs> called histor historiography, oh boy. These middle symbols, uh, syllables, I always get the, the uh, consonants reversed or whatever. It's the study, the history of histories. In other words, it's a history of, of how historians have viewed history. And if you uh, read anything in that field, you see that history keeps changing. The past keeps changing because uh, historians keep coming up with new ideas. So, for instance, uh, one controversy that I'm familiar with, uh, not too long ago, I guess it was in the 20s or 30s, there was a very famous French historian whose name was something like Pirenne or Pyrenees, and his whole theory was that the uh, Roman Empire collapsed because of the rise of Islam, cut off trade and so forth. Now that theory has been rejected, and if you read uh, today's history books, they'll mention that Peren's theory, people used to believe this, but now they don't believe this anymore. And then they'll give you a new history, a new reasons. It, uh, the Roman Empire collapsed because uh, the middle class was taxed out of existence. Guess what? You think, ah, great. But 20 years from now, there'll be another story. So if you look at, at history as it appears in history books, it's constantly changing with time, whatever time is, over time. It's not something fixed. That, oh, now we know this much history and now we can build on that. No, we start to build on it, but the old histories are scrapped and new histories, new stories are invented. In a short period of time, there are variations. They seem to be variations on the same story, but over a long period of time, the stories change completely. Look how, how completely the story of the past has changed in the last 300 years in Western Europe. 300 years ago in Western Europe, time began, somebody, some theologian figured it out in something like 4002 BC. They even had the date. It was like April 13th, 4002 <laughs> BC. No, they did. That's when God created the world. That's when time began. We have a very different story now 300 years later. And 300 years from now, there's going to be a very different story. Right now, it's the Big Bang and, you know, so forth. It's like quicksand, you know, can't really get your hands on it. But in personally, more importantly, personally, although this affects us personally, personally, what is the past for us? What is our own past? Is it anything other than memory? Hmm? Well, 
in truth, it's memory, but there are reminders. Like, for example, you could have a scar or you could have a bad back or something that would trigger memories and tell you your past. So that, in a sense, the uh, <coughs> consequences of the past are in the present, as is the memory. If there are consequences, if there is a past, the consequences are in the present. Yeah, insofar as past is spoken about and used, right? In a relative sense. I, I don't even like the word memory, really, because it's more imagination. Memory implies there's something really concrete there. And I know from my own life, looking back, you know, my, my memories change a lot depending on, on my attitudes. Very, and therefore, I have to say it's imagination. Very good. And this is why even Teresa's observation about historians and history applies personally, doesn't it? Our reconstruction of our own past changes. Even when we have uh, present reminders, and we don't have to just look at a scar. These days, you have videotapes, you know. Uh, every little step that uh, Tina or Johnny made is now videotaped, and the people sit around, or I presume they do, I don't know why they bother going through this trouble with videotape, and they look, you know. And they say, oh, look, Jennifer's taking your first step. Remember that? Oh, wasn't that great? Her Uncle Harry was there. No, Uncle Harry wasn't there. What do you mean Uncle Harry was? I was sure Uncle Harry was there. Wasn't he there? What year was that? Uh, you know, notice how people get into those sorts of disputes about even looking through a photo album or something. How, how differently different family members uh, remember what that period of growing up together was like. Huh? Uh, as an extreme example, there was a case so about three or four or five months ago that was prominent in the paper for a while about a woman who had gone to a therapy and had recovered memories of her father's abusing her and I think was suing her father. And her father says this is just not true. And then they uh, they had uh, um, interviews, I, I guess I saw this on television, uh, with the father and the daughter. And the story was pointing up the, or, or questioning, how reliable are recovered memories? And from the father's point of view, he had a wonderful relationship with his daughter, which she said was wonderful up until the six months ago when she started going to this therapist. And, you know, suddenly... His daughter goes off to this wacky therapist, this is his point of view, starts remembering all this abuse, and now she won't talk to him, do you know what I mean? He's like lost a daughter, and, and he's crushed, he doesn't know what happened to him, his whole world's collapsed. From her point of view, all these were repressed memories, and, you know, she, I know, she was anxious in her life or whatever, and then she went to a therapist, and then she realized, oh, the cause of it, she was an abused child, no wonder. Which is true? Is there any? Is there a way to determine objectively which is true? Really, ultimately, isn't it just like uh, the frame of reference where we set up various points, and then if if there are a number of items in the heaven are fixed, and one is moving in relation to them, we'll call that moving. Supposing this uh, at this trial of this. Uh, uh, daughter and uh, the daughter was suing the father, so the court case. Supposing they start bringing different witnesses, and they and one witness comes in and says, uh, uh, "Oh, I'm Aunt Millie, and I lived with that family for five years. I had a broken uh, back, and they, I was right there in the home, and and I, I never saw the father abuse the child or anything like that. This is ridiculous, right?" And then they bring in someone else. Um, uh, I don't know, uh, Jessica, who was the, who was the, uh, daughter's best friend, and said, I remember when I was in third grade, Jessica told me that her father, you know, well, do you know what I mean? You, the, the evidence sways this way, and then the evidence sways this way. This is what courtroom dramas are about, by the way, you know. First, they show you the prosecution's case, especially if you're supposed to be rooting for the defendant, and they really make you convince the defendant is guilty. And then they bring in the defense, and then they undo all those things, and you go, ah, you know. So, you know, we determine, we have to make decisions here, but how do we really know absolutely? The past is a reconstruction, and it's a reconstruction, it's not even a permanent reconstruction, it keeps changing. 
You go back to talk to your uh, parents or your uh, other relatives you grew up with and ask them stories about growing up, and you'll start to get a different picture of your own childhood. It's something we construct, and Bonnie's absolutely right. Imagination. It is imaginary. It is imaginary. Yeah. And we're very, very attached to it. You mentioned uh, disputes about the past photo album or something, and we're very attached to these imaginations, and we feel really good when other people tell us our imaginations are correct, and we get very threatened if we're told that they're not. We're very attached to them. And how much suffering does the past cause us? Guilt, resentment, think of all the things. Hmm? Yeah. Something that is look in your own experience. Now this is I'm not I'm not you know telling you how things are. I'm I'm suggesting ways to investigate this in your own life. Something when you really investigate it is imaginary. It, it's not there. There's nothing there. It is a creation of the mind. Imaginary causes this tremendous suffering. We can say the same thing about the future, and the future is even more obvious than any time we're projecting with the, uh, about the future. A, it's happening in the present, like when you're reading a history book. If you're reading a forecast of what things, you know, the economy is going to be like next year, uh, first A, you're always you're doing it in the present. B, it's it's totally imaginary. We're much more aware that our our imaginative creations about the future never materialize. You know, we 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 don't uh, think it's quite so shocking if we plan to do something. Uh, we plan, I don't know, to go boating and then it rains. But nevertheless, we still become very attached to the future that we create in the present. And how much disappointment do we get? How much suffering do we get through things like disappointment? We have expressions like, oh, I had my heart set on going to Hawaii this year, and then there was a hurricane, you know, right? Even just very little things during the course of the day. You want a, it's a hot day, and you're just dying for a, a coffee ice cream cone, and you go down to Baskin Robbins, and you go in, and it's like a coffee ice cream cone, just one scoop. So sorry, we're out of coffee. Oh, uh, uh, what else do I want? I don't know. I just, oh, I really wanted coffee. And But examine. You're driving down there, it's hot, and your mind creates coffee ice cream cone. You see what I mean? And you become attached to it. There's nothing going, nothing real here. The th doesn't this, this starts to be what the Bhagavad Gita said? These things aren't real. At least in the past, at least in the future. They aren't real. They're imaginary forms. They never really do come into being. They never really do go out of being. Except in, except insofar as a, an image comes into your mind and goes out of your mind. But we don't say imaginary images have any other reality than the fact they're imaginary. All right? Now let's look at the present, the now. A lot of mystics talk about be here now. So they understand this, you know, the past is imaginary, the future is imaginary, and so our problem should be be here now. Be, live in the present. What is the present? Non-existent. Well, don't jump ahead so far. <laughs> You're probably right, but let's investigate a little bit. How would we define the present? Where is the border between the present and the past? Or the present and the future? Here, you tell me when, when, we, when we get to the present. Now, this is, this, is, this is keeping track of time here, right? So, what, what is it? It's just no, maybe just watch when it hits the the, the twelve, the top. Maybe that's the present. It's gone. <laughs> How long did it last? Right. How long did it last? There's another good question. How long does the present last? Very good question. How long does it last? Infinitely small. 
infinitely small, infinitely small, or infinitely big. You can't, there's no distinct way of distinguishing it. Is there? It is. Hmm? <laughs> you just said it is. Well, it, if it is, what is it? This is the point. I would go back to what color is it, you know? Uh, how much does it weigh? Where does it begin? Where does it end? I mean, when we really come to talk about the present, or what else, what can we say about it? It isn't the past and it isn't the future. We could say that. But it isn't. It's harder to say. But... Yeah. Words. Thoughts behind the words. Okay. Now, mystics do talk about the now. Here's Meister Eckhart. That now in which God made the first man, and the now in which the last man will have his end, and the now in which I am talking, they are all the same in God, and there is not more than the one now. Now, this now, he's, this is not a present in the way we talk about it in terms of past, present, and future. He's talking about not now as a particular moment in time, He's talking about now as a synonym for eternity. That is eternity, isn't it? This now is the, is the now that God made the first human being. It's the now that I'm talking. It's the now that the last human being will die in. Has anybody ever experienced anything other than this now? pop mystics who say, be here now, and, and the idea is that you should feel guilty if your mind wanders off to think about Hawaii or something, and you oh, well, I'm not living in the present. How could you not be living in the present? What other time zone is there to live in? Has there ever been anything else but this now? Yeah, you want to say something? Oh, um, Right now, I just I just got myself a bunch of books. One of them is uh, Stephen Hawking, the uh, Natural History of Time. Yeah, and uh, he was talking about something that I that I'd read and picked up before. But when the further they look, like with a telescope or with the radio telescopes or whatever, um, they're seeing the past. Oh, so are they seeing now? Or are they seeing then? Let's take this digression a little bit, because this is a very interesting, uh, for those of you who are still leaning towards materialism, and uh, this is a very interesting exercise you can do. You're absolutely right. When, when you look at a star, Alpha Centauri, that's four year, light years away, that means what you are seeing happened four years ago. Because it takes that long, see, four years for the light to reach you. So if on Alpha Centauri, uh, someone's putting on their glasses, by the time the light reaches you, and you, you see visually in your telescope someone putting on their glasses, that was four years ago. Mm. Now, even the sun. What? what? Even the sun. Even, even my putting on the glasses is a split second behind your experience. I mean, uh, yeah, I guess, I You're guess watching I the past. Essentially, I'm watching the past, essentially. You are further away in quote-unquote time than she is. But even when you look at her, everything you're seeing is the past. This is a very interesting, uh, this would be a very interesting thing to take as a little meditation. Everything you're seeing is the past. It's already happened. There's absolutely nothing you can do about it. From a materialist point of view. Everything that you experience has already happened. Even the sensations from a materialist point of view they happen in the finger, but it takes a, a split picosecond to get up to the brain to register. You see what I mean? So it's already gone. So I touch this, and by the time I've touched it, it's like that sensation is is already in the past. Well, your body knows it, though. In the instant it happens. Maybe your brain doesn't, but... No, 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 no. They, they've done scientific tests, actually, where, where they stick a pin in, and there's a, there is a delay by the time your body reacts. It happens so fast you don't notice it. But what reacts? The brain? <coughs> yeah. The mes- well, it's just like... The if, cell that you're touching. No, it's like this. Why? Because if you have a spinal injury and your uh, spinal cord is severed, then I can stick a, a, a pin in your foot and you, it do- the foot doesn't react. Because the message didn't get up to the brain and then a message return message says react. 
So your foot doesn't know. There's nothing in your foot that knows. You see what I mean? Well, we don't know that. Well, it's not what quite true I? because you'll still get an injury. I mean, you know, your your immediate, you know, if there's a cut in your yeah. foot, your brain may not experience pain, but the the skin that's cut will re- respond. It will bleed. Oh yes, but it'll, it's mechanical bleeding. Your foot won't move in, in response to the pain. Depends on what is you. Yeah. Now, now, now you're getting way ahead. Yeah. Now we're speaking in relative terms here. I've got my relative truth to, to yank out whenever we get in this discussion. But in other words, the uh, response, the feeling part that, that you know happens here, and it takes time for that to, to transmit uh, that message. Yeah, your knowledge of what happens. Right, exactly. Okay. So that's what we're talking about here, your, your experience. <laughs> so even the experience of your body is what I'm saying. You're, when you sit there feeling your body, that's a delayed reaction. From this, from a materialist point of view, because they believe in time, and so there is this, you know. Hmm? What about thought? What about thought? How can that be past? Oh, that's interesting. Is thought past? You, you, now there's something you can investigate. You watch your thought. Watch your thought. It's reactions to what has been if there was nothing for me to experience, would there be any thought? A very, very, very interesting question. Just something to investigate. I don't want to get off on this because this is something, this is something to investigate in meditation. Because you can reach stages of meditation where there is very little to react to. And what happens is the mind becomes quiescent, calm. Not much thought arises. Sometimes no thought arises. That's a very interesting experience. So, um, in any case, I, again, now we're just, we're, we digressed on this business of things being in the past. I mean, if you have a materialist point of view, actually there is no present. There's only past. Everything is in the past. You don't live in the present at all. But if we try to define what present is in terms of our experience, our empirical experience, we can't. The present is eternity. The present is eternity. Impermanence is a delusion. Remember I said in the beginning, impermanence has to do with time. Time creates impermanence. Nothing that we call impermanent ever comes into existence, into being. And what is real never really goes out. Some Buddhists have a very wonderful way of putting it. It's like the world threatens to become real. It almost becomes real. You know what I mean? It almost becomes real, but it doesn't quite make it. It never quite makes it. It's always sort of trying to get into existence, but it's always falling away. This is why Ananda Moyamai says, the delight in the things of this world, in sense objects, is fleeting indeed. It does not last. It is impermanent. Now, that sounds like this teaching of two worlds here, but now this is a bridge teaching. Listen how she puts this. But where God and God alone stand revealed, there is no such thing as impermanence. If we realize the truth of our situation, of our nature, we would see there's no such thing as impermanence. Where God and God alone stand revealed. As long as we have this dualistic idea that there are two worlds, there's the world of God, of eternity, and then there's this world of time, that's better than, than, than not having any perception of a dimension of reality that is timeless, but we're still caught. When we see that the timeless alone is real, God alone is real, then we see that there was no impermanence to begin with. And this is why the certain theological problems that trouble some people greatly are, uh, can't be answered from a mystic's point of view. They can't be answered sensibly. For instance, the, there's a famous story about Augustine. St. Augustine was asked, what was God doing before he created the world? And this has been a problem in any, any uh, tradition where there's this idea that God created the world in a particular point in time. Well, so what was he doing for all eternity? And why would he suddenly decide to create the world and so forth? Do you know what I mean? 
And, and it's uh, Augustine, this is probably not true, but Augustine is said to have replied, God was creating hell for people like you who ask questions like <laughs> yours. <laughs> Actually, Augustine was much oh, smarter, much more of a mystic than that. And uh, he said, really, the time doesn't come into existence. There is no time before the world is created. Just like we try to imagine, supposing there's nothing, supposing you abstract all forms out of consciousness, there's no time there. Time isn't something that flows along and then some point uh, God decides to create, you know, on April 13th, 4004. But... Uh, uh, this is why these questions about when, how did ignorance start? When did ignorance start? They don't make any sense. They're questions in time. They don't make any sense from a mystic's point of view. And they can't really be satisfactorily answered. And some people are very disappointed that mystics can't answer that. You can get poetic answers. Like, why did God create the world? And the most beautiful one I've said before that I know of is the one in the Quran where God says, I am a treasure that longed to be known. That's not a, that is not a statement about time and physical reality and so forth. It's a statement about meaning. Ibn Arabi, a great Sufi, explains it this way. If a doubter asks as to when the universe came into being with reference to the existence of God, we answer that when is a temporal term and time belongs to the category of relations and is created by God, for the universe of relations has a supposed and not a real creation. Now, he's saying the same thing, listen, in the same words almost that Nargajuna said. These are relational terms, and they only have a supposed existence. The same thing Anandamoyama is saying. You see, at the higher level teachings, they all come together, and I guarantee you Abhina Rabi never read Nargajuna. But they've discovered the same thing. So the question is void. In other words, if you ask a relative question about the absolute reality, it can't be answered. It's comparing apples and pears. Look before you question. Beware, lest the nearness of the means of approach should prevent you from finding out and realizing the truth in yourself. And again, there's a... We know this is a mystic because always pointing out, you have to realize this for yourself. Don't take my word for it. But it's very interesting what he says. Beware lest the nearness of the means of approach should prevent you from finding out and realizing the truth for yourself. The truth is so obvious. It's so close at hand. For instance, to investigate time, you don't have to go read Stephen Hawking's. It's right here to investigate. All you have to do is get, at least suspend for a time, your beliefs in what is real and what is not, and go look and investigate. That's how close the realization is. Uh, this is why one of the Hasidic masters says, time has no meaning in the sight of God. Again, we see that, that the absolute truth, all these Teachings come together again. God didn't create the world, and if we want to speak in terms of that cosmology, at some point, the world is a creation now, always in the now, as Meister Eckhart says. This is the creation of the world. We're standing at the dawn of time, at the dawn of creation. We are in it, and we are it. We are the form through which all this manifests. Always, always. Jesus said, uh, in, a, uh, in answer to his disciples, his disciples said to him, Tell us who thou art, so that we may believe in thee. He said to them, You test the face of the sky and of the earth, and him who is before your face you have not known, and you do not know to test this moment. They want to believe in him. So who are you? You know, the son of God, are you God's messenger, whatever. And he says, you test the sky, you look for omens in the sky and miracles and, you know, all this sort of stuff. If you want to know who I am, test this moment. Don't look anyplace else. Right here, right now, this moment is where the answer lies. Know what this moment is and you'll know it all. Then you'll know who I am. 
What is real is real right now. Always has been, always will be. The eternal is the now here. It's not some other world to go to. It's not some other place to go to. This is it. This is it. So enlightenment is not something that happens to you in the future. No one ever becomes enlightened. This is it. No one ever finds God. God isn't off anywhere. This is it. The eternal God. Right now. All you have to do is realize it. So I come back to the ultimate teaching. Having taken this route, hopefully not to have convinced you of anything, but to have given you clues and ways and means along the way to investigate this, to see for yourself. Consider uh, time, particularly in your own experience. When you start feeling guilt or resentment about the past, stop there, remember, investigate. What am I, what is my cause, my suffering here? What is it? See for yourself if there's anything really there. Or if you're worried about the future and you have anxieties and so forth and fears and whatnot. What is the future? Or if you're struggling to be here now and to live, uh, you know, in a sort of a new age way and be present everymore. What, before you go try and do that, what is the present? Investigate it. In the meantime, you might take what the Buddha said uh, as some good advice. Let go of the past. Let go of the future. Let go of the present. Proceed to the opposite shore with a free mind, leaving all suffering behind. Well, we had kind of a long talk today. Does anyone have any questions or comments? Well, why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close? You can ponder this. And uh, we can talk about it some other time. Meantime, if you'd like some, look at this time, time. In the meantime, if you'd like some tea or to check out the library, help yourself. And peace to you all. <laughs>